Morning. It's good to see you. If we've never met, my name's Jay. I'm part of the team here, and um, I'm a big fan of that Strangers thing vibe in that little bumper video. Uh, if, if, um, if you're new to Westgate, welcome. A special welcome to you. Uh, obviously, I see a lot of familiar faces. I know we've got folks um, online and out in the theater. Welcome. So glad you're joining us. Uh, I see a lot of familiar faces, but I see a lot of new faces too. So if you are new to our church community, uh, you came on a fantastic day. We are kicking off a brand new series uh, for the next month, and it's going to get weird, you guys. Let's get weird together. It's going to get so strange. But uh, after we sort of wade through the strangeness of, of some of what we're going to talk about, I think that there's going to be immense hope and clarity uh, and maybe awareness, which I think is so critically important. We're going to explore the spiritual realm, which let's just be honest, as modern Western people, it's strange. For most of us, it's a strange concept. We mostly live in the material world. We have a material mindset. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But to begin, I want to um, tell you a really quick story. I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, I want you to imagine a group of friends going to the beach in the 1940s. Maybe imagine it as a photograph, a group of friends going to the beach in the 1940s. And maybe in your mind's eye, you see something like this, right, this photograph. Just a group of friends going to the beach in the 1940s, black and white, very classic looking. But I want to show you a different photo of a group of friends going to the beach in the 1940s with this next photo. This is also a group of friends going to the beach in the 1940s. But they are not carrying with them beach balls and frisbees and surfboards and umbrellas and beach towels. Had they been carrying those items, it would have been, <laughs> I mean, it was already uh, a dark day, but it would have been darker still. Because this is a photo, uh, again, of a group of friends going to the beach in the 1940s, but this is 1944, and the beach is in Normandy. And this is like literally at the apex of World War II. Many of you know this story. Many of you watched Saving Private Ryan, right? And that film opens with a scene of this day. And this group of friends, they don't take beach balls and an umbrella and beach towels and frisbees and surfboards, do they? What do they take? They take weapons. They take weapons in order to defend themselves, and they take weapons because they have a particular mission as they embark upon this beach on this day. And here we are, 80 years later, and most of us, if not all of us in the room, at least still know something about that day. Because the great sacrifices that were made that day have ramifications for us today, here and now. The freedom we enjoy, and on and on. Now I juxtapose those two photographs because what I have come to believe is that most of us, if not all of us, believe that life should be, if it isn't, it at least should be. And what we should aspire to in life is life as a long sunny day on a warm summer day at the beach with leisure and pleasure and peace and joy. And that is a great thing to aspire to. But what the scriptures make clear is that life and human experience and human struggle is much more like the second beach. 
that whether you know it or not, you live in some ways on a battlefield. Now, I share this with you not to strike fear in your hearts, okay? That's a risk we are going to take for the next four weeks. It, I, we are going to risk that if we are not careful, we might walk out of here Sunday after Sunday afraid. That's not the point. And in fact, I would say fear has no place in this story. And you'll see why, especially when we get to the tail end of this teaching today. There's no room for fear. There's no need for fear. Because even though we live on a battlefield in many ways, the strange and beautiful reality is the battle has already been won. Victories already ours. C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, he wrote this. He says that enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say, landed in disguise and is calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. I love that phrase. Followers of Jesus are called to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. In other words, to sabotage the work of the enemy that is before us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the writer Paul, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That phrase, be strong, is in, grammatically, it's in what is called the present tense imperative. In other words, it is not like a kind suggestion. It's a command. If you are a follower of Jesus, be strong. And that begs the question, well, why? Be strong against what? Again, if life is just a leisurely day on a, on a warm summer, 80-degree day at the beach boardwalk or whatever, there's no need to be strong. In fact, the goal is to relax. Paul makes clear, if you're a follower of Jesus, no, 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 be strong. Why? He continues in verses 11 and 12. He says, put on the full armor of God. We'll talk more about that in the last teaching of this series a month from now. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Okay, most of the time when we read passages like this, we just kind of skim over it because it's so strange. We just think, okay, well, that's the Bible being the Bible and I'll just live my life in the here and now, in the material world, what I can see and hear and taste and touch. And I don't have to understand all of this stuff. But the biblical writers seem to indicate that this is critically important. They talk about the spiritual realm over and over and over again. You know, when Paul writes that word, the powers of this dark world, that entire phrase, the powers of this dark world, and the original language of the text is just one Greek word, and it's an awesome word. It is the Greek word kosmokrateros, kosmokrateros, which actually means, this is so awesome, you guys, it means cosmic powers. Okay, we are, most of us are familiar with cosmic powers. When we think cosmic powers, you know what most of us think? We think of this guy. This is what you think. 
when you hear cosmocrotoros, right? Is anybody like, some of you who are like cinephiles and you're really into like American cinema, you hate that I put this up here. It's like, that's not film. That's a joke. That's nonsense. But some of you, just admit it, how many of you are fans of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Don't be shy. Raise your hand high. Be proud. I love it. I love that stuff. You know, sometimes before I come into work to lead a staff meeting, I will watch that scene in Endgame when Captain America gathers like all the Avengers and he's like, Avengers, assemble. And the music swells and everyone rushes. I'll like watch that to hype myself up. Like, let's go. (laughs) And I really want to stand in front of our staff one of these days and say like, Westgate, assemble. Except they'll all make fun of me. Steve will make fun of me. Be like, shut up, get out of here, you know? So I'll never do it. But it's like, I love that stuff. I love the MCU. Okay, when I hear cosmic powers, I think of fiction. You know what I'm saying? Like, we don't live with cosmic realities in mind. And understandably so. You're just trying to see if, like, how do I get the the raise at work tomorrow? You know, how do I raise my children to be normal human beings who contribute to society and hopefully love Jesus I mean, we just have very normal, everyday, in-the-trenches sorts of issues that we are trying to work through. And that is all well and good. But what is undeniable is that the Bible, regardless of what you do or do not believe about the Bible, what is undeniable is that the Bible and the biblical authors seem to make very clear that there is a spiritual world and cosmic things happening beneath the surface of the physical, in ways that are just as real as the physical. Let me just show you some examples. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Paul also writes earlier in Ephesians, the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, be alert and sober and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Okay, again, I'm going to repeat myself throughout this series. This should not strike fear in your heart. We'll get to why a little bit later. This is simply to raise the awareness that there are things happening beneath the surface of the seen world in the unseen world that have immense ramifications for your real life. In other words, whether you want it to be true or not, every single one of us, every human on the planet lives life on a particular battlefield where the enemy of God, often called the devil or the Satan, we'll talk specifically about him, Uh, next week. But the enemy of God is waging war for your soul and for societies at large. 
And that sounds so much like fiction, doesn't it? It sounds so much like, oh, you're just talking about the next Captain America movie or something. But the biblical authors seem to indicate that this is the truest reality beneath the surface of our seen reality. Now, here's what's really interesting. It's not just the devil and his minions. Sometimes you call them demons. It's not just bad guys. What the Bible makes clear is that there is like an entire unseen spiritual ecosystem. Let me um, give you an example. Literally, the opening lines of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You guys know how it goes. What does it say? In the beginning, God, right, created the heavens and the earth. Now, when most of us as modern Western people hear the word God, we think of God, whether intentionally or not, we typically think of God and we apply God as a proper name, right? So if someone says to you, do you believe in God, for you, especially you, because you go to church and maybe you're a Christian, you are thinking, oh, he's asking me if I believe in the Father God, in Yahweh, right? Here's what's really interesting. That word God in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word for God is the word Elohim. Now, Elohim is found over 2,600 times in the Old Testament. And the word Elohim is not a proper name. It's a title. It's a descriptor. And it's actually a very broad descriptor. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the word Elohim, yes, it absolutely often describes God, like our Father God, Yahweh. It absolutely does describe him. But did you know that the word Elohim is also used in the Old Testament often to describe pagan gods? It's actually uh, used to describe false gods and even human leaders, The word Elohim is also used in the Old Testament to describe other spiritual beings like angels and God's divine counsel. We'll get more into that in the coming weeks. Let me show you an example, a couple of examples of how this works. The psalmists do this a lot. Psalm 82, verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. You know how this reads in the original text? Elohim presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the Elohim. Let me give you another example. Psalm 136, verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods. Which reads, give thanks to the Elohim of Elohims. Really interesting. Now, some of you right now are thinking, I need to get up and walk out of here because this place is preaching heresy. This guy is standing up here, and all my life, if you've been in the church, you're thinking, all my life I've been told there is only one God. But this dude is standing up here telling me that there are many gods. I am not telling you there are many gods. What I am telling you is that the Hebrew translation of the word God is not a proper name. There is one God amongst like all the spiritual beings. There is only one true God, and he has a proper name. It's Yahweh. And he has a particular relationship with his people. He is God our Father, and we are his sons and daughters if we have said yes 
to Jesus. So please, do not rip a clip from this teaching and tweet about it and say, J. Kim is a heretic. There is only one God. But what the Bible seems to indicate is that there is one true God, but also there are spiritual beings. And this is not that far off from what you actually believe. You just give them different names. Many of you have questions about or just already emphatically believe that there are angels. Do you know? Many of you, if not most of you, do believe there is some spiritual being that is the enemy of God called the devil or the Satan. Steve will teach more about him very specifically next Sunday and demons and all of that. So I'm simply showing you that the word Elohim is not a proper name. It's a word in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that is actually used to simply describe the reality that there is an entire spiritual world all around us. That there is one true God who rules and reigns over all things. As Christians, we believe in the triune God. Yes, God the Father, but Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, three in one. Mathematically, it makes no sense. So stop trying to figure it out. But it is reality, biblically speaking, and through our own experience, right? There is one God. But surrounding this one God and surrounding our world and our lives, there is a spiritual reality full of spiritual beings who have various roles and intentions and desires. Some of them, yes, are angels, right? And the Bible is so clear about this. These prophets will have these beautiful visions of heaven. And what do they see? Is God sitting there on the throne all alone? No, These visions in the Bible are of God surrounded by like a chorus of of spiritual beings who are singing his praise and worshiping him and giving him glory. And, And the story goes that human beings who say yes to Jesus will someday experience new heavens and a new earth and we will also live in the manifest and visual and physical reality of those visions that the Bible makes so clear. So I share all of this with you only to say that the biblical authors, along with the rest of the ancient world, had no problem understanding and embracing this reality of a spiritual realm full of spiritual beings, both good and evil, that exists right alongside the physical world that we can see, hear, and touch. In other words, we live in a world of God and many spiritual beings surrounding him and us. Now, here's the challenge of this series. We could go seven years and just go Sunday after Sunday and deep dive into each of these ideas. There's so much here. But I've already committed you all to probably seven years of the Gospel of Matthew, so we're not going to do that. We're going to go four weeks, but... I know that this series is going to raise all sorts of questions for many of you. It's like, well, what about this detail? Or what about that? Or what about this verse that I've read? So I want to point you to a resource. We created a resource page on our website. Um, I'll show it to you here. There's a QR code as well as the URL. So if you want to right now, you could just uh, pull out your phone, 
and snap um, that QR code on your camera. It'll take you right to the page, or you can just snap a photo, and uh, the URL is right there. So whenever you want to, you can go to that page, and already right now there are several books that we would recommend if you really want to deep dive, and there are links to a series of videos from our friends from the Bible Project, where there's like seven to ten minute long Bible Project videos that will explain like specific items in detail. Um, we are also filming uh, like a two-hour conversation with Dr. Gary Brashears at Western Seminary in Portland, where I'm just going to, Dave Tish and I are just going to drill him with like the weirdest questions ever, and he's going to share his thoughts, and so that video will get posted on this page as well. We'll break up the video into topics, so you don't have to watch the whole two hours. You can pick a topic that like is interesting to you, and we'll try to do some of the pastoral stuff like What's demon possession about? Or are exorcisms real? Or should I be afraid that, you know, the devil is going to break my Tesla? Or whatever, right? All those sorts of, like, real things, you know, that, like, stress us out. <clears throat> I just drove a Tesla for the first time last Sunday, you guys. I've been repenting of envy all week. So <laughs> it's, like, so awesome. Okay, so keep checking back on that page, and there will be great resources there for you. Okay, but, but um, before we continue, what I want to do is I want to I ask the question, why is this so hard for us to believe? Because it is. Let's just admit it. This is not easy to take in, the unseen, the unseen world, the spiritual realm. Why is it so hard to believe? In 1984, uh, one of the greatest pop theologians of our time, Madonna, released a song called Material Girl. You guys remember this song? And in it, she has this profound line. She says like eight times throughout the song. She says, we are living in a material world, and I am a material girl. You can all hear it in your head right now, right? Those of you who are like over the age of 40, you can all hear it, and you see the music video where she's like trying to be Marilyn Monroe, all that, okay. Now, what Madonna meant was basically, I like fancy things, I like diamonds or whatever, right? But I think what she gets at in this line is really helpful. We do live in a material world. We live in the physical, and that's not bad. It's like wonderful. It's a gift. It's the way God designed human experience to be, to be physical, to be tactile, to see and touch and smell and taste and all of those things. But the problem is our material world has led to, in the last several centuries, a sort of worldview that has erased the possibility of anything that is immaterial. Does that make sense? We live in such a material world that to believe that there are realities that you cannot see, hear, taste, and touch today in 2022 is like ludicrous to believe that in most of the modern Western world. Um, James Anderson, the, the writer James Anderson, he describes materialism this way. It's really helpful. Materialism is the view that everything is ultimately material or physical in nature. Every object is a purely physical object. Every event that occurs has a purely physical cause, if it has any cause at all. In short, the universe is just a collection of clumps of matter following the, law of, the laws of physics. Now, there was like an early version of this sort of thinking amongst the Greek philosophers in about the 5th century B.C., 
But this modern version of materialism, like the world in which we live where uh, your um, non-Christian or irreligious friends, if they heard you talking about this, they would say, dude, you're insane. What are you even talking about? Right? That version of materialism really took root in about the 17th century. Uh, and for the last three, four hundred years or so, it has become the dominant worldview in the global West. But it is also, in my mind, what I would call, what, what C.S. Lewis calls, chronological snobbery. We've come to believe that because science is able to explain the immaterial, that there is no reality beyond the material. Does that make sense? Because we believe that microscopes and telescopes can actually help us see in detail the things that we could not see in detail before, we have come to believe that if you can't see something in detail, it is not real. That's what we come to believe. But this is the classic example that you've all heard before. Think about the person you love the most in your life. Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a child, maybe it's a friend, whoever it might be, right? Maybe it's your barista, that would be super weird, but whatever. Maybe your barista's awesome. Okay, think about the person you love the most. Now let me ask you a question. What color is your love for them? How much does it weigh? How tall or how wide is it? You cannot answer. So your love for them is not real. You don't love them. That's just biology. It's just, it's just chemistry. It's neurons in your brain firing, and you gave it a name called love. Is that true? Is that true? I mean, would a person give their life for chemistry or biology? Is there a parent in this room that would agree with me? that they don't actually love their child. It's just neurons firing in your brain. That's a simple, maybe even simplistic example, but it at least nudges us in the direction of the possibility that there are things that are real and maybe things that are truer about us than the stuff you can see, that you can measure that you can touch, that you can hear. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If and when we believe the myth of materialism, that the only reality is that which we can see, hear, or touch, then we are missing out on the truer story playing out before us. Now, in the coming weeks of this series, next week Steve is going to deep dive into the devil and demons. That's like the fun part of my job. I can assign those things to other people. It's like, <laughs> devil, demons, Steve, you love that stuff. It's going to be awesome. The week after that, we're going to talk about how the spiritual realities, the unseen, actually bubble up to the surface of the seen that the devil's tactic is primarily a tactic of lies and how we begin believing cultural lies that form us in ways that God never intended. And then finally, we're going to end by talking about, like, what do we do? 
how do we live with utmost confidence? So those are the next few weeks. But um, to sort of land the plane here today, I just wanted to raise the awareness. Uh, I want to ask a question, why does this matter? Some of us are sitting there, it's like, okay, Jay, I believe you. There's a spiritual world, an unseen world, spiritual realm, there's God, but then there's angels and the devil, the Satan, and demons, and all that. I get it. It's fine. Can we just move on? Why does it matter? Why are we talking about it for an entire month? I, um, I want to offer you two key reasons. One, personally, unless we live aware that there is a war being waged for our souls, and that is what the enemy wants. That is what the devil or the Satan is after. Again, Steve will get more into that next week. But unless we live aware that there is a war being waged for our souls, we will live perpetually vulnerable to the enemy's tactics. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Make no mistake. The elemental, spiritual, unseen forces of the enemy waging war for our souls is happening and unfolding in this world, in the world you and I inhabit, in your home, in your workplace, here in our church. Now again, I I know I risk raising the fear and anxiety in this room, but hang with me for a minute. So first, the reason we're doing this is because personally, unless we live aware of the war being waged for our souls, we will live perpetually vulnerable to the enemy's tactics which are happening in this world. And secondly, communally, together as a community, unless we live aware of the spiritual enemies fighting for our souls and our church and our society, we will make enemies of one another. The pastor in New York City, uh, John Tyson, he writes this in his book, Beautiful Resistance. A culture that has removed the supernatural from its thinking will not do away with the concepts of the supernatural. It will transfer them to the natural. Without acknowledging actual fallen angels and enemies of God, we turn others into fallen members of our desired social conditions and enemies of ourselves. In two years, there will be an election, and believe me, I am already thinking about it and praying for myself, for my family, for our country, and I am praying for you. Because I guarantee you this, the devil is salivating waiting for 2024. If the devil really is, as the scriptures tell us, crouching at the door, prowling, looking for someone or a community to devour. He's looking for entryways. And we see this in all sorts of ways, but politics is one of these ways. We make enemies out of each other because we believe the material lie that the path to human flourishing runs through the White House or Washington, D.C., When the scriptures make clear to us that the path to human flourishing for God's glory and our good does not run through D.C. or the White House, it runs up the hill of Calvary through a cross and then an empty tomb. And until we believe that to our core and that our enemies are truly not flesh and blood, we will make enemies of one another. 
We will believe that the person who votes unlike us is standing in the way of our journey toward flourishing, when in fact the journey has already been taken, the path has already been paved, and we simply need to walk the way of Jesus, which is the way of death to self, in order to receive resurrection life. This is why it matters. Satan, God's enemy and our enemy, has a singular goal, and it is the fracturing of souls and societies and churches. And we have to live aware that we are storming Normandy, not casually, leisurely hanging out at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. But if we are in Christ, there is nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear. I'm going to ask Mark and the team to come back, and we're going to sing. And my hope is, you know, it's one, of the, it's one of the ways we wage war, is to sing truth together. And you feel it. Many of you feel it in your soul. I felt it just standing there singing along with you a few moments ago. Here's the thing. Colossians 2, this is why we have nothing to fear. Colossians 2. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God has disarmed the enemy. The victory is already won. The path is already paved. There is nothing to fear. There is not a thing the enemy can do to you or in you if you are in Christ. He will try, but you have nothing to fear. Years ago, my daughter is seven now, but when she was about three, um, we, uh, we enrolled her in sort of like a daycare. You know, Jenny and I were both working, and so we enrolled her in a daycare, and for uh, many months, every day when I would, I would have drop-off duties, every day when I would take her to uh, daycare, I would play this worship playlist, this sort of worship playlist on shuffle, and she loved a bunch of the songs. I mean, she was three. She didn't know what any of them meant, but her favorite song was this song that at the time, I didn't really like that much, but she loved it, so she asked me to put it on repeat It was this beautiful, it came to be for me, this beautiful song called Tremble, right? Many of you know it. And uh, the lyrics say, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble, and it goes on and on. So every morning, she would ask me to play this song. For months, she would ask me to play this song on repeat. And uh, I remember one night during that time, she um, she went to bed, and in the middle of the night, she starts screaming in her room. So I run to her room, and I, I, we're sitting in the darkness of her room, and I ask her, what's wrong? Harper, what's wrong? Harper, what's wrong? And she says, Daddy, Daddy, there's something in my closet, right? Classic child sort of fear. There's something in my closet. Turn the lights on. Turn the lights on. And so I didn't want to turn the lights on because she would, like, really wake up and have a hard time going back to bed and all of that. So I said, well, I didn't know what to do. So I said, Harper, remember that song you love to sing when we drive to school every day? You know that song? She's like, Uh, I think so. Like, let's sing it together. And she's like still crying. She she won't sing. So then I start singing her the words. Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, you silence fear. Your name 
is a light that the shadows can't deny and your name cannot be overcome. I just started repeating these words over her. And in her little three-and-a-half-year-old mind, she didn't really fully understand it, but she calmed down, and there was a peace that began to resonate in her little dark bedroom. She went back to bed. Sometimes you and me are like my little girl. Life gets really dark. And yes, it is a strange and maybe even fearsome thing to think that there is an unseen enemy that is um, pressing darkness into our lives. But Jesus has disarmed that enemy. That means that the enemy has no weapon that can harm you. Jesus has made the darkness shudder and tremble in fear of him. He silences the fear. There is no, no shadow, no darkness, no enemy that can deny the light that Jesus brings, and he cannot be overcome. Jesus is undefeated. So is there an enemy waging war for your soul and for our society and our church? Yes. But is that enemy anything or anyone to fear? No. Christ has disarmed that enemy. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and sing together.